Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Psalm 130. You can follow along with uh, me in the Bible that you brought. You can follow along with me in the Bible that's provided for you in front, uh, in the little pews. You can uh, follow along in a smartphone. You can follow along in the bulletin printed for you free of charge so that you can follow along. There's no excuse not to if you would like to. Uh, anyway, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor. I want to say it's good to be back. I've been gone for the last three weeks, and many of you have asked me what I've been doing, and you can tell I've been growing out my hair, and uh, this is, <laughs> so anyway, but uh, students, we're really glad that you're back. Uh, welcome. I hope you have another great year here on Rocky Top, and if you're visiting, we're really uh, glad to have you. Um, and we're really thankful you're here because we know that there are a million uh, different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be out at Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, getting all your Bed Bath & Beyond things that you need for your new uh, apartment. Or you could be down at World's Fair Park getting this year's tattoo uh, at the tattoo convention that's down there. Or you could be at another manda- mandatory dorm hall meeting. Uh, but you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us this morning, and we really do want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus Consider his claims upon your life and think about the kindness and the beauty and the strength of his salvation. And so thank you for joining us this morning. What is uh, Redeemer? Thanks for asking. Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, And that he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that he has for us. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We get our tattoos together. We watch, you know, EPL together. Uh, But what we really love to do is we love to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way that would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. People are trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind And as we reflect, and so to help us do that, we are continuing in our sermon series that we've entitled uh, The Stairway to Heaven, uh, Reflections on the Psalms of Ascents. 
And what we're trying to do during this series is we're trying to think about the fact that we are all on our journey to uh, the holy city, to the new Jerusalem. And so as we are along our way, what we want to do is we want to learn the songs of the saints who have gone before us. And the Old Testament saints, they would sing these psalms, Psalms 120 through Psalms, Psalm 134. And so when we started this series, we started all the way back uh, in Psalm 120. And then you remember the next week, we looked at Psalm 121. And then the next week, we looked at Psalm 122. And then 123 and 124, 125, on and on, so forth and so on. And then this week, we're going to look at Psalm 131, then next week, 132, and then the next week, 134, and then we'll start our fall semester. But anyway, this morning, we're going to look at 131 as we turn our attention to seeking rest. All right, seeking rest. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you are a God not hidden nor silent, but you are a God who loves to make yourself known. And you've done this in your word and by your spirit, and ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer right now that as we attend unto your word, that you and your kindness would attend unto us, that we might see lovely things of you. In this your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in the eighth grade, uh, my, one of my daughters had to learn uh, William Ernest Henley's famous poem entitled Invictus. And so my wife, Jennifer, and I would sit at the table and she would rise to recite these words and she would say this. Uh, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am captain of my soul. I'm sure many of you memorized this in your youth, or at least you watched the Matt Damon movie Invictus, you know, with Morgan Freeman and that rugby team from South Africa. But either way, this is a powerful uh, poem, right, celebrating the enduring power of the self. And I think for many of us in our youth, this was an incredibly inspiring poem. Because as you read it, it's saying to you, don't give up. You can be, you can do whatever it is you want to do. You are strong and nothing can stop you. But here's the reality. As I've gotten older, this poem no longer really resonates with me. Because the fact of the matter is, I never wanted to be bald. Uh, I uh, never wanted to endure the shame of being injured over and over again playing this game called pickleball. And uh, though I read this poem and it tells me that I am strong, the reality that I know is that I am weak. 
And though this poem tells me that I am in charge, what I know in my experience in this world is that I am not. And the reality is that as I think about my own life, what I realize is that I am not today what I wanted to be when I was young. I'm not today at all what I wanted to be when I was young. Uh, Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am very thankful for who I am, but I am not who I set out to be. And the reality is, is that when I sort of reflect upon my life, what I begin to realize is that oftentimes I've been a very poor captain of my own soul. And often I have run myself aground upon the shoals of foolishness and of disappointment. And though this poem encourages us to rest, right, in ourselves, and though at first as we read it and as we recite it with great courage, it might sound liberating, I want to invite you to really consider the ramifications if Henley is right. Because if Henley is right, I want you to now consider the pressure that is now upon your back. If your life really is completely up to you, if you really are the master of your fate, then what this means is yes, you can boast and you can celebrate that you have been responsible for all of your success. But at the same time, you are also responsible, exclusively responsible for all of your failures. And therefore, what that means is you better get life right. And if you are captain of your own soul, I want to ask you a question. Do you even know where you are going? Do you know where you're trying to pilot yourself to? Do you know how to navigate the struggles and the sufferings of this world? Do you really know what the point of life is? Do you know what it means to be a true human being? And the purpose of this psalm is actually to confront this very common vision that many of us are holding, that we belong to ourselves. The psalm is confronting this vision that we belong to ourselves. And this is really important, I think, because it seems to me deep down, most of us really believe that we are alone in this world And therefore, we must set our own path and chart our own course. And if we are the ones who must set our own path and chart our own course, this is what I believe leads most of us to complete restlessness. A couple weeks ago, I was in Greenville, South Carolina with a good friend of mine named Tim Udodge. And Tim and I were talking about one of my favorite shows. It's entitled The Bear. Uh, If you've seen The Bear, it's on the hula, which is what uh, men 50 years and older call Hulu. Uh, But uh, this is a fictional account of a chef who uh, is a Michelin award-winning chef. He's been voted the best chef in America, and he's been trained in Noma over in Copenhagen. And he's been working at this really fancy restaurant in New York City when he finds out that his brother has just died. And so he returns to Chicago he returns to Chicago to take up the family business, which is this Italian beef sandwich shop. And he goes back, having made all these fancy meals in New York, to making Italian beef sandwiches in Chicago. And there's this aspiring young chef there in Chicago named Sidney, who's been following his career. 
And she realizes that he's come back to town and he's in this little Italian beef shop and she wants to go work with him. She wants to go learn with him. So together they start working and they begin to think about how is it that we could make this restaurant the best restaurant in Chicago? How could we make this place a destination? And so to make this place a destination, uh, they need money, right? So they visit with Uncle Jimmy. And Uncle Jimmy uh, has a lot of money and he makes that money the Chicago way. And so as they begin sitting with him and they're starting their pitch with him, Uncle Jimmy looks around and he says, you know, from this booth where we're sitting, I could throw a rock and I could hit any number of great restaurants in this city. Why do we need another one? And Sydney uh, says, well, our restaurant is gonna get a star, meaning not a Cracker Barrel star, right? But, but a Michelin star. Our restaurant's gonna get a star. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be a destination. Uh, and Uncle responds, then what? Right? Uh, we're gonna get a star, right? Then what? And at the same time, Carmi and Sydney respond like this Sydney says, then we're dialed meaning then we're tuned in, then we're it, then we're hot, then we've arrived. And Carmi says, then we're trapped. Right, then we're dialed, then we're trapped. And I think this is a really amazing conversation going on between them because what we see in this show is that they're both restless, right? Sydney is restless in her chase of the star and of success, trying to make herself something, trying to make herself and prove to the world that she's important and significant. And Carmi is restless because he knows success. And he knows that once you succeed, you have to keep it up. Here's the deal. Many of us are pursuing success thinking that one day that success will give us rest. Success will never give you rest. You're either chasing it or, you, or you're trying to keep it. Some of you are starting at the university this week and your whole future is in front of you and that is so exciting. Uh, but as you enter into this fall, many of you are so afraid that you're going to fail. And so you enter into this year restlessly trying to prove that you're not a failure. And you're restlessly trying to prove that you're smart enough and good enough and that people should like you and you are going to have mono by November, right? <laughs> Others of you uh, are uh, gonna be incredibly successful and you're gonna get all your A's, you're gonna get invited into the best clubs and you're gonna get your internships and then what? Uh, you'll have to keep it up because there'll be more tests. Uh, you'll get invited into a special club and then into a secret society and then you'll get another internship and a better internship. You don't have to do that internship for free. Now they'll pay you to do the internship and you keep it up, more money, better jobs, bigger cities, more responsibility, and then what? If you've been following the women's U.S. national soccer team, uh, you know, after their uh, exit, early exit from the uh, World Cup, uh, you, you've probably been seeing people writing about the team, and one of the things that people are saying is that younger players exist uh, to replace old, washed-up players. Think about that. Younger players exist to replace older, washed-up players. Now, think about that. If all you are is great and successful until you're not, 
Who will you be when you are replaced? Here's my point. When you're young, uh, you often feel like the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. But I think most of us will come to a place in life when we're just tired and replaceable. Or as John Gorka likes to sing, life is full of disappointments and I am full of life. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lot, right? But I say these things because what this psalm is doing is calling a restless people, uh, restless with success, restless with our fears, uh, restless with our failures, uh, to find rest in God. This psalm is inviting the restless to find rest, right? The restless to rest. I want you to look at the way this psalm begins. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And what we see here is that the psalmist is now challenging this common notion that we are the center of everything. And in classical C.S. Lewis fashion, what he's saying is that we are not to think too highly of ourselves and we are not to think too lowly of ourselves but we must learn to think less about, we must learn to think about ourselves less, right? We must learn to think about ourselves less. This past week, I was in New York City at uh, Tim Keller's memorial service, and uh, on the way out of St. Patrick's Cathedral, everyone was given this little booklet that Tim wrote called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And I thought it was really amazing that here we were uh, gathered in one of the most impressive buildings in the world, maybe, St. Patrick's. We were gathered with some of the most impressive men and women in the Christian world had gathered at this event. And we had gathered to celebrate a fairly impressive man in his life and his work. And as we left this really impressive invent, event, uh, it was as if Tim was reaching out from the grave and handing us this book and saying to us, be free. Forget yourself. This is amazing voice from him. If you haven't read this little booklet, I, I really would encourage you to. It's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. And in this booklet, he talks about how our hearts, our egos uh, are empty and they're busy that our hearts are empty and they're busy. And he says they're empty because we've tried to build our lives upon something other than God. We're constantly searching for something to give us a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose in something other than God. But if we try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it is going to be too small. It is going to rattle around in your heart because it's empty. It is going to rattle around in your heart because it's empty. And because our hearts are empty, I think this is why busyness rules our lives. Because we're empty, we are restless, and we are trying to fill our empty souls. And so we try to all different things. We, we try grades, we try jobs, we try money and tennis and pickleball and vacation and shoes and cars and art and wine and sex, and on and on we go trying to collect all these things to fill up our hearts only to find that they still leave us empty. Now, the problem isn't that we want a full heart. Uh, we were made for our hearts to be full. 
The problem is that we're trying to fill our hearts with the wrong things. And in all of our attempts, I think few of us really know what to fill it with. The other day I was listening to um, Mark Sayers. He's an Australian uh, pastor, kind of cultural critic. And he was saying this, that in our modern culture, we have moved from a should culture uh, to a could culture. Right, from a should culture to a could culture. And what he meant by this is that we used to be a people who would build our lives around our commitments, thinking that those commitments would fill us up. But over time, what we began to realize is that those commitments didn't actually fill us. And so what we wanted was to be a people who were then free from our commitments. And so we started to look around at other people and other things, and we could be doing this, or we could be doing that, we could be there, we could be here, thinking that all these other things could give our souls rest. But the problem is that when everything is possible, we actually don't know where to go. When somebody tells you, you can go anywhere in the world, that's really hard to choose. When someone says, you can do anything you want, it's really hard to choose, right? Where uh, we don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to pursue. And if you're like me, this just leads to more restlessness. And so we sit in the dark and we doom scroll on Instagram, uh, looking at where everyone else is and what everyone else is doing, thinking maybe if I was doing that, maybe if I look like her, maybe if I live there, then I would be okay, then I would be happy, then I would be full. Right? And it just makes us more and more restless. Because none of these things that we leave our commitments for to go do some other thing are going to fill us. And the same way the commitments didn't fill us, neither do these things. So we're restless people. And in our restlessness, we then seek to take control of our lives. And yet the irony is that the life that God gives us is too big and it is too great and it is too marvelous for us to actually control we should look at what it says in verse 1. It says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Well, what things might be too great and too marvelous for you? Let me suggest a couple things. How about your future? Your future is too great and too marvelous for you. How about your life? Your life is too great and too marvelous for you to control. How about this? Your children, your children are too great and too marvelous for you to control. You cannot control their success. You cannot control their failure. You cannot control their disappointments. And it seems to me that in our restlessness, we seek to control everything. Many of you are starting at the university this week and you're restless about your future. Who are my friends going to be? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do when I graduate? These are important questions, huge questions, the right questions to be asking. But you cannot and you will not have the answer to these things anytime soon. And when you receive the answer, I promise you, you will be surprised. See, one of the problems is we seek to control the world. God invites us to love the world. And you cannot love the thing that you're seeking to control. You know, as someone who loves another, you can speak your wisdom. 
You can share your thoughts. You can nurture them and care for them. But you cannot control them. Love does not control. It receives. Love is always curious. Right? But it does not set out to control another. And I think this is important because your life, your neighbor, and this beautiful world is too marvelous for us. It is too big for us to control, and yet so often it seems to me that in the name of love, parents, uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, churches, politicians, and our neighbors often try to control one another rather than actually love one another. And I think the reason we do this is because deep down our hearts are occupied with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. And I think that we're restless because we think that we know what is actually best for everyone else. And so we've made our plan and we have made a plan for the way that everyone else is supposed to function within it. And when other people don't care about our plan, when they don't follow our plan, what do we do? We stomp, and we get angry, and we yell, trying to gain and regain control. I was thinking about this psalm uh, the other day, and thinking about things too marvelous and too great for me, and I started to think about my son, William. Uh, you know, uh, William has moved away. Many of you know this. He lives up in Richmond. And I was thinking about my family. My family, uh, from my grandmother on, we've been a Coke family, uh, and my son is a Pepsi man. Uh, literally works for Pepsi, uh, slings the Mountain Dew uh, for, his for his vacation. And uh, I was thinking about William, this Pepsi man, who when he was thinking about going away to college, he wanted to go uh, study business at the University of Tennessee. And I wanted William to go to William and Mary, right? Or to the University of Virginia and read books, you know, get educated. Right, and uh, so uh, so I kept pushing and pushing and pushing until William like kind of pulled me aside. He said, "Dad, I don't want to read books. I don't want to go to the University of Virginia. I want to sell things, and I want to spend Saturdays at Neyland Stadium." And uh, and this was a really powerful conversation for me and my son uh, because what I realized is I wanted William to be me. My plan for William was for him to be a better version of me. Like he'd stepped up from Clemson, right, to UVA. He read a book. I'd never read one, right? So uh, I wanted William to be me. But what I needed to learn is I needed to learn how to love William. And I needed to learn to rest in what God was doing in William. When I think about my daughters, uh, my daughters have never dated a boy that I wanted them to date. Uh, and, uh, and the reality is that they will never date a boy that I want them to date. Uh, because what I realize is I, I cannot control the boy that she's going to date. And what I know is that there's never going to be a boy that's good enough uh, for her. Uh, but if I try to control them, Either they are going to be alone or I am going to be alone. Parents, uh, you're about to drop off your children uh, at school, kindergarten, third grade, uh, graduate school. Uh, and I promise you this, 
their life will not go according to your plans. Uh, and the reason for this is because their life is going to go according to God's plan. And I promise you this, that God's plan is better than your plan. And therefore, as God's people, as his children, we need to learn how to entrust those we love to the God who actually loves them better than we do. We need to learn how to rest in the Father who has loved us and rest in the fact that he will love them too. We must learn how to love our children and our neighbors, not for who we want them to be or who we want them to become, but we must learn to love them for who God has made them to be. Even when I think about this culture in which we live, the world in which we live, it's easy for us to get really restless. Uh, and we get restless because we realize that we're not in control. And because we no longer feel in control, we've become a people who love to complain and condemn. And we love to try to exert our power and throw our weight around trying to bend the world back to our own plans. But what if we became a different sort of people? What if we began to become a people who rested in God and the fact that he has a plan for his world? This is really his world. That he's really at work in it. That he's really doing something in this world. And what if we began to rest in him? And what if we began to see the world not as something that we can control and not as something to condemn, but what if we saw the world as a thing that we could receive and a thing that we could love? What, what if we saw this culture in which we live not as something that is scary to us, but as an opportunity for us to learn the love of Jesus and as an opportunity for us to step into it not to condemn it, but to step into it, proclaiming a God that we can't control to a culture and to a world and to a people that we cannot control because we rest in the goodness of God. What if we begin to do this? Here's what would happen. Our hearts would break. The more you do this, your heart will break. But the more you do it, you will become more like Jesus. I assume that many of us have struggled with addiction in our past or in our present. And if you have, uh, you have come to memorize the serenity prayer. Right? God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think this is an important prayer for all of us. Most of us in this room are addicted to control. Most of us in this room are, are restless. We think too highly, we think too lowly of ourselves, and most of us in this room, we are addicted to ourselves. And we need to learn this prayer because we cannot be occupied by these things that are too great and too marvelous for us. And I think that this prayer is really important because what this prayer is doing is it's leading a restless people to the place of rest. It's leading a restless people out of their restlessness to God. And that's what this psalm is about, right? This psalm is about finding rest in God. In the fourth century, an African 
priest named Augustine wrote this in his confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The governing image in this psalm is what? It is a child at rest. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I want you to think about what uh, a child is like before she is weaned. A child before she is weaned is a restless child in her mother's arms. Always squirming, always crying, always thrashing, always rooting around, looking for the food. Always demanding that it gets what it wants now. But a weaned child is a child that has learned that she's loved. A weaned child is one who has learned that her mother will care for her and provide for her and protect her. And therefore, she can rest in her mother's arms. And this is what God is inviting us to do, to rest in him, to close our eyes and to enjoy his loving embrace. Isn't that what you want? Like, isn't that, don't you want to find rest for your soul? for the busyness of your life? Don't, don't you want to know that you're loved and provided for and cared for? Don't you want to read these two verses and say, I'm now at rest? <laughs> if, if only we could read these verses and everything would be okay. Charles Spurgeon, supposedly commenting on these passages, said, this is a short psalm, but it will take the rest of your life to learn. It will take the rest of your life to learn. You see, like infants, we are born discontent. Like infants, uh, we are born restless. And we must learn to be content. We must learn the love of our Heavenly Father. We must learn to rest. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying we must learn contentment. We must learn to rest. It does not come natural to us. We must learn that it's God who strengthens us. We must learn that it's God who provides for us. We must learn that God actually loves us. And the reality is that through all of our suffering and through all of our victories and through all of our sorrows and through all of our joys, both in plenty and in want, our Heavenly Father is teaching us His love. About eight years ago, I became your pastor. It was a great day. Thankful that y'all invited me to come here. And when someone becomes a pastor, there's this ceremony that we do. We did it a couple of weeks ago for Rob. It's called an installation service. And in my installation service, we sang a song 
that was written by a guy named Sufjan Stevens, and the song is entitled uh, Vito's Ordination Song. Uh, many of you know, some of you might know Vito. Vito is a former RUF campus minister. He's a pastor, Presbyterian minister in New York. And Sufjan wrote this song as a gift for his friend at his ordination. And it's a lovely song. Uh, most, at most ordinations, you have a young pastor who is incredibly restless, who's incredibly afraid. And we invite all these preachers from the presbytery to come and tell them to be strong and be courageous and be smart and read the Bible and pray and do good things and be righteous and don't mess up too bad, right? Uh, but the beautiful thing about this song, Vito's ordination song, is that it doesn't come from the voice of the congregation with all of its hopes and all of its expectations on a young pastor. Instead, it's the voice of God singing as if a lullaby over his dearly loved child. And so here's what we sang together eight years ago. Bear with me. I always knew you in your mother's arms. I have called your name. I've an idea. Placed it in your mind to be a better man. I have a crown for you. Put it in your room. And then there's this litany. I always knew you in your mother's arms. I have called you son. I have made amends. So rest in my arms. Sleep in my bed. There is a design to what I did and said. Rest in my arms. Sleep in my bed bed. There is a design. Rest in my arms. Here's the point. God is inviting a restless people to rest in him. And that's the point of this table. So come to this table. I want you to look at verse 3. <clears throat> it says, hope in the Lord. As we said over and over again throughout this series, Lord, capital O, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the covenant name of God. It's the name Yahweh by which God reveals himself to us as our Father. It's the name of the God who says, I am your God and you are my people. It's the name of the God who comes to us and says, you are my dearly loved children. And that God is saying, hope in me, trust in me, rest in me. But what is it about him that would allow you to settle down and rest? I think it's this. As we look up to him, we see that he is a God who came down the stairway of heaven to be with us. And he came down that stairway not to condemn us and not to control us. But he came down that stairway to love us. To bear with us in our failure and to succeed on our behalf. 
He came to come to us and comfort us in our loss and in our sorrow and our disappointments. And he came to celebrate uh, with us in his victories. And so what he's saying to us is he's saying, I have come to you because I love you. And so what he's saying now is he's saying, I want you to stop looking at your failures. And I want you to stop looking at your success. And I want you to look here at this table where I have given myself for you in love. And I want you to come to me so that I might feed you, so that you would know that I provide for you, so that you would know that I care for you, so that you would know that you are mine, so that in the end you might actually rest in my arms.